The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. You know, no one wants to feel sorrow. In fact, it's the emotion we most avoid for it makes us vulnerable to the onslaughts of deep emotional and even psychic shifts. We live in a world in which the social pressures and rigid schedules of life forbid our sorrow, yet sorrow changes us. It allows us into the closets where we've hidden the authentic self. Our guest today is going to talk to us about sorrow and how we might facilitate a deeper soulful journey through sorrow. Author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and the Sacred Work of Grief, Francis Weller is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist who has founded the Wisdom Bridge to provide educational programs to bring together wisdom from indigenous cultures with the Western culture. Frances Weller is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. He's introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people. The core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, what psychologist Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. His work was featured in the Sun magazine in October of this past year, where I learned about his work and uh, then contacted him immediately because I was so impressed with it. He's a frequent speaker also and keynote speaker at conferences, and he currently is completing his second book, A Trail on the Ground, Tracking the Ways of the Indigenous Soul. You're not going to want to miss this one word of this man's profound information on the inner workings of the amazing human soul. Welcome, Francis, to the Authentic Living Show. Thank you, Andrea, for inviting me. Oh, I, I would not have missed it for a second. And I want to, first, before we go any further, I want to correct uh, the misspelling of your word name. It's Francis, F-R-A-N-C-I-S, not E-S, as I spelled it in our announcement. I wanted to make that correction because it, uh, these things are important about how we identify. So, second to that, I also want to say, uh, I wanted to ask you, how, how did you get so deeply involved with the impressions of the soul? Ah, very good question. Um, The impressions of the soul, I think that that's been my lineage in some way. I had a dream one time where I was sitting at a kitchen table with James Hillman, who was kind of the founder of archetypal psychology. And one of the main uh, proponents of bringing the language of soul back into the culture. And we're sitting at a kitchen table, and he gets up and walks over to a closet opens the door and there's a chest of drawers in there and on every drawer he pulls out a sheet of paper that has the bibliography of Carl Jung and then it goes back in time through the Renaissance through Ficino and Vico all the way down to Heraclides and looks at me and he said 
this is your family tree. Mm. So some way I can't get around it. I can't get away from it. It's, it's impressed itself upon me, and I have been for the past 33 years as a psychotherapist tracking soul, how it shows up in our conversations in my consulting room, how it shows up in culture, and uh, trying to listen deeply enough to find the what is most native to a soul-based style of living. Absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and what you just said about it showing up in therapy, I'm also a psychotherapist and I and I teach some workshops on on how it shows up in therapy as well. And I didn't use those terms, those are yours, but but I I um I do think it's we are, you know, we're looking for science-based kinds of practices and mm-hmm. it becomes um imperative that we look deeper than what uh, empirical evidence can provide for us, don't you think? I do. I mean, I think a lot of our emphasis is on repair. And that's vital. It's helpful uh, when there's been damage or a wound. Um, but the soul calls us to a deeper uh, style of moving through the world that, that touches into beauty, into intimacy, and and takes us into the places that we typically don't want to go, like grief and sorrow. You know, it, it pulls us into the depths, and we're kind of a depth-phobic culture. We tend to like things on the surface, where we can control them, where we don't have to feel too deeply. So it's just, you know, we, we kind of get conditioned to occupy a space of a little bit of a distance from our own emotional lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the there's a comfort zone in that, but are there other reasons for why we we sort of run away from that? Well, I think the main thing that I've seen over all, all these years is just how alone we are with it. Mm-hmm. And when you privatize emotion like we have, even psychology colludes with that by saying, oh, in your own feelings. Well, what if the feelings are collective? What if they belong to all of us? Mm-hmm. And they're more like visitations. And when we're forced to encounter our own difficult emotions like grief, in private, they become too much. They're overwhelming. And so we, you know, we typically want to then steer away from them because the, the, the confrontation with it, uh, we're not equipped. In fact, we're not even designed to encounter those things alone. I think that's the, that's the primary issue that I face in my practice. And people come to a private practice therapy. And I say, this is a good place to start. It gives you some way of becoming into a more receptive relationship to these difficult emotions. But ultimately, you will need community to help you really metabolize what's here. Yeah, that's very beautifully said. And I guess that's why your, your ritual and the, and, and is so very important to that because ritual very commonly is community. But I want to, before we go there, I want to go back to what you said about uh, what if it's a visitation from the collective? Can you say some more about that? Yeah, I mean, William Blake, the great poet from England in the 18th century, said that he called emotions divine influxes. And that's not very private. It's not my emotion. It's more where he said it's a visitation from something sacred. So when anger comes into your body, he says it's like a visitation from Mars, the god Mars, or... These things arise mysteriously, they move through us, 
and they depart. Rumi called them guests at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tend to, again, want to privatize these things. And it's fine to take responsibility for them. But what, again, what if emotion arises in the field? I often tell the story of driving north and coming across a clear cut and feeling deep sorrow. Now, psychology would say that's my own inner clear cut that's reacting, you know, my own feelings of having been diminished or, you know, stripped bare of my vitality. But what if, as a human being, I'm a receptor site for the emotions of that land base right there? Mm. What if the ferns and the sorrel and the owls and the, you know, lichen and everything there is actually moving up through my body? And I'm a receptor site for that place, for that experience. So in that case, those are not my emotions, but they're visiting me. And, and in some sense, it's my spiritual responsibility to acknowledge them and to feel them fully and to express them. Wow, that's beautiful. Very beautiful. I think that, that, that does bring, back us, bring us back to the point of oneness, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think we occupy something more vital and alive than it is more the sense of we are individual selves bouncing off of other individual selves. Mm-hmm. That we actually share, there's a, we are more like semi-permeable membranes exchanging something constantly. You know, in, the, in, the, in our intimate moments, we touch and feel what's there between us, not so much what's in us, but what's between us. And that's what I call the third body. It's more the soul of the relationship, what's happening between us. The old alchemist had a phrase that said, the greater part of the soul lies outside the body. So that's how come we can have contact between human beings and between us and trees and stones is because of this overlap, this place of meeting. And that's where I think the emotion gets quickened. Yeah, yeah. So we're part of something much bigger than ourselves, and to to ignore that would be to miss out on a big chunk of life, wouldn't it? Well, when we do uh, lose contact with that, we feel very lonely. Mm -hmm. And loneliness is one of the greatest symptoms of our time, is that people feel disconnected and partly because they feel disenchanted. We've kind of entered into a relationship with the earth that feels more mechanical than it does soulful. And when you lose that larger sense of being, uh, we are reduced to a small minutia of, our, of uh, what we truly are. The Renaissance time, they, had a, they tried to come up with an image for the vastness of the soul, and the image they came up with was the night sky. But that's mm-hmm. how big we are. That's how immense, that's how beautiful, that's how mysterious, and that's how connected we are. But we feel like we're just simply little, you know, particles, solitary, singular creatures, kind of disconnected from everything else that's around us. And this uh, delusion of imagination is really quite a a huge part of our grief as well. Yes. Yes, I agree completely. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so... I do. I do want to talk about the ritual that you you are so um, good at really explaining. But I also want to bring up the idea of silence and solitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you you talk about silence and solitude, but you're also now talking about oneness. So, uh, 
Can you help me bridge that gap? Well, I, I think I hesitate around oneness. I think I'm more a sense of multiplicity, multi-centric experiences. They were all kind of sitting at a place where contact is available, conversations possible, intimacy is available between us and the world and between us and a friendship, between us and our children, between us and our own experience of soul. Uh, that's always available. You know, to be in the constant conversation that Rumi talks about. Um, I'm trying to go back to the part of your question, which was about... Yeah, I just kind of wanted to see how you could, if you can put together those two ideas of silence and solitude. Ah, Oh, yes. I think silence and solitude are very (laughs) essential practices that we are very unfamiliar with. We might be alone, but we're really not entering into solitude. The poet Rilke, Rainer Marie Rilke, said that I am too alone in the world, but not alone enough to make every moment holy. Mm. So we oftentimes find ourselves alone, but we then want to go into distraction, into busyness. But what if we entered it more as a, a time of encounter with our own soul? And so that solitude and that silence become places of reverence, places of deep listening, as if there's another voice worth listening to. And that's where we have to pause and make some spaciousness around all the things we do and come into some deeper receptivity. Um, And when we do, I think we're oftentimes met by something quite beautiful, quite rich, quite deep. Yes, And, and then we're not really alone anymore. No. No, not at all. Yeah, I have a theory that one of the reasons we, so many people say I can't meditate and they say they can't stop their mind from going, I have a theory that the deeper issue isn't really the mind going. I think it more is that we're afraid of being alone and we're afraid that that when people talk about silence and solitude, they mean, oh, go off in the room by yourself and you'll be absolutely alone. And they they don't know that the soul is as big as the sky, the night sky and is beautiful Exactly. And that, that silence becomes also somewhat fearful because we do have to confront in those moments sometimes pieces of our own life that we have neglected, mm-hmm. parts of our own experience that we've abandoned. And the soul doesn't like or tolerate that type of neglect very long. It will, it will return in symptoms of depression or anxiety or you know, fear. Um, it wants some level of recognition in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you speak in your book uh, of an apprenticeship with sorrow. What do you yeah. mean by that? Well, so, grief is not just an emotion. It's also a skill. We need to become capable and more fluent in the Uh, choreography and and practice of grief because in truth there is no way that anyone will get through this life without loss but most of the times we are absolutely unprepared to work with what's presented to us when a marriage ends or you know a child dies or you know uh, we face our own losses of through aging through our own physical limitations 
And so I oftentimes talk to people about taking up this apprenticeship, which carries different pieces to it. One of them is uh, learning how to be in right relationship to grief. This is so crucial. We tend to have a binary relationship with grief, which is I either push it away or it crushes me and I drown in it. And neither one of them helps to move it. So coming into right relationship, finding how to be almost uh, in an intimate conversation with it helps you to come into a different quality of connection. Rather than resisting it or drowning, you're actually in dialogue. The next part of that apprenticeship is to cultivate some kind of practice in your life that steadies you because storms will come. Big losses will happen in everyone's life. And when they do, there has to be something that helps to give you ballast, something that can help hold you at least on some deep level steady in the storm. And another part of that apprenticeship is that um, we need to make sure that when grief comes to the best of our ability, that who's grieving is the adult human being. I've seen this so many times in my practice and frequently at the grief ritual weekends that when grief arises, some very young part of us begins to show up. And this very childlike part has no capacity and no skill to process the grief that's just arrived at the door. And so again, what happens time, many times is that we don't just have a grief experience, we have a grief panic experience. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely it does. Uh, it's, just, it's so interesting <laughs> when, when sadness and sorrow arise, we simultaneously become terrified. And partly because we, we approach grief with a feeling that there's no bottom to it. And so it's going to be, if I go in that space, I will be in free fall forever and I'll never come back. I've heard that mm-hmm. comment from so many of my patients that if I go there, I'll never come back. Oh, yeah. And what I end up oh, saying yeah. to them is, if you don't go there, you're never coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a break in just a minute. And um, I want to come back to that because I want to find out what we do with that little child when they enter the room, when we're in the, in, in the room with grief. Good. Um, yeah. So um, we'll be back right after this. You want to stay tuned. You don't want to miss any of this. This is good stuff. Be right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Spoiler alert, a space of being may cause spontaneous laughter, extra money, ease, joy, magic showing up in your life, and outrageously orgasmic moments. Join Grace Hart live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel, where she combines her psychic abilities and the tools of access consciousness to assist you to create a totally different reality and transform your personal and professional life, including relationships and finance. I wonder what magical possibilities await you at a space of being. Are you a spiritual seeker? Have you always pondered the deeper questions in life? Have you looked at many spiritual paths and found some answers but are looking for more? The Open Door. 
brought to you by the Summit Lighthouse, brings you each week practical spiritual teachings and tools that promote self-mastery, higher consciousness, and the opportunity to connect with the Ascended Masters. Join Tom Schumacher and Terry Kennedy as we explore the universe of spirituality. Live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the 7th Wave Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. AIHT offers degrees in interfaith and interspiritual educational programs that enable you to not only find your own authentic spirituality, but to bring your unique gift to the world in service upon graduation. At AIHT, you can get a master's doctorate or ministerial bachelor's degree, and the doctoral programs are broken down so that you may get a PhD, a doctor of ministry, or in the holistic theology program, a doctor of theology degree. The programs in which you may get these degrees are holistic theology, holistic health, holistic ministries, metaphysics, and parapsychology. These courses offer depth and meaning to not only your own spiritual search for truth and peace, but to your capacities to bring your healing, loving, guiding gifts to the world. What's most important to AIHT's model is the exploratory nature of studies that reach to the depths of all the world's religions, traditions, and paths, and even to transcend them to find the mystical core of them all in order to facilitate your own journey to your own authentic spirituality by utilizing as your text writing teachers spiritual experts from all over the world. You can learn more about what's offered by going to www.aiht.edu or if you'd like to talk directly to the admissions director, call Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. You know, Oprah says education is the key to unlocking the world, a passport to freedom. Call and get your passport today. And speaking of today, we're talking to Francis Weller, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and Sacred, The Sacred Work of Grief. And we were talking just before the break, Francis, about how it is that someone might um, begin the grief process and then become, uh, you become aware that it's not the adult that's grieving, but a child has entered the room. And I wanted to find out what, what we do about that. What, does, what happens when the child enters the room? Well, unless 
there's another presence there, another human being there. Frequently, we don't even know we've been taken over. It's almost like a state of possession. Jung mm-hmm. called these complexes. And complexes form when we encounter emotions too large for our own psyche to process in the moment. We, you know, we can just think about PTSD these days. Um, but there's another kind of PTSD. There's another kind of trauma that I call slow trauma. And slow trauma is when particular emotional experiences are not held adequately by the community around us, our family, our parents. And so when, particularly around grief, that energy of grief frequently wasn't held well enough, so it becomes an overwhelming experience, which tends to then be shunted off into its own autonomous experience. And that's who shows up when grief comes back now as an adult. It activates that core of emotional charge that's characterized by a very undeveloped part of us. Now, Jung gave us some very helpful hints here. He said that you cannot heal what you cannot separate from. So one of the key things we have to do is begin to recognize and separate from that child part so that the adult has a better chance to actually stay present in moments when those charged experiences are occurring. I hope that's making sense. Yes. And uh, so part of our responsibility, part of that apprenticeship, is finding ways to help us anchor ourselves in the adult. That, uh, so when grief does come up, because it will, it doesn't automatically trigger us back into being that very frightened, solitary child. Uh, I give a whole series of practices in the back of the book for how to really help solidify the adult more and more present in the world. Because it, what you're asking is a very essential question. And, and on our weekends, we spend quite a bit of time helping people to recognize and reflect back to each other states that tend to look like you've just left the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and another way of saying that, and we've heard it this way in, in, uh, in, out in the streets of the world, uh, that you, uh, you, you make contact with unresolved issues Mm-hmm. from childhood and mm-hmm. then you know if you can kind of step back into the observer mode then you uh and that would be equivalent i think if if i'm right to the adult yeah. and you can sort of watch yourself and sort of be present with that person as you observe the child entering the room correct that, and then okay. you have the chance to turn toward that piece and hold it with a deeper compassion perhaps maybe for the first time Yes. Which allows it to soften and relax rather than being so rigid and reactive. Mm hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Very well said. Thank you. All right. So you also talk about, uh, well, let's let's just, let's talk about the rituals now. Why is ritual so important to grief? Well, if we think about it, um, grief has always been a communal process. It's never been a solitary thing. And it's become very, again, very privatized. It's my grief. I have to carry this alone. We almost feel embarrassed. I mean, I have clients all the time apologizing for crying. We, we apologize at funerals for crying. There's something about in this culture right now that somehow wants to suppress and borderline shame us for going into those places of deep vulnerability and, and sorrow. 
So if we try to return back to its original context, if grief has always been communal, which I absolutely believe it has been, then the means by which the community would address ritual, I mean, address grief, was through ritual. Ritual is the original uh, setting through which those deep emotional confrontations with life were actually contained and held within sacred space. There are certain things that can only happen in ritual space. There's a certain transparency of authenticity that can only happen when we've created this solid container. It's like, you know, I often say, well, when we're at the grocery store, we all tend to kneel down and start grieving together. We're waiting for the right container. We're waiting for the right setting and the right space that our psyche recognizes because that's a language that's even older than language, than spoken language. We were doing ritual long before we even spoke. So it's, it's um, deeply ingrained in the psyche, in the body, that this is the setting in which I have permission and encouragement and adequate holding to really set this sorrow down. The two things are required for us to really let go of grief. One is containment and one is release. If I'm doing both jobs simultaneously, guess which one wins out? I become a constant containment field, but I can never set it down. I can't do both jobs at the same time. So we require that ritual space to provide the containment. So my only job at that moment is release. Set it down. But that's not the same as closure. No, no, no. Uh, What we do when when we really set the grief down is we change the relationship to it. I remember one man I was working with who... uh, you know, I think I tell the story in the book who said he wanted to know the one, two, three of grief. How do I get over this? And I paused and I said, oh, I can't. He was talking about the death of his wife. And I said, you know, I can't accept the premise of your question because it presupposes an ending to your grief. I said, it won't end, but it will change over time. It will turn into a bittersweet melancholy. I said, this is your new relationship with your wife. So it's not we're trying to get rid of grief. We're trying to set down the charge of it that allows us then to move into a metabolized relationship with it so that then what we carry is that bittersweet memory. You know, it's, we don't want the loved one to go away. We don't want to finish or come to closure with certain parts of loss. We want them to then not be the thing that's oppressing us and when drowning us in, a, in almost a state of depression, we want to taste and experience the vitality of grief and help us return back to a full, engaged living. Yeah. Yeah, and as anything that is, carries that much emotion and that much almost like we fall in a river and it carries us, we change as a result. We're, we're somehow different after going through grief. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that one of the most profound things that grief does is it deepens us, carves riverbeds in our soul. It's a way in which um, what gets deepened is our, again, if we collaborate with grief and not resist it, if we can really work with it, 
it opens the heart up to a much more profound sense of our interbeing, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word, that all beings know sorrow. Everyone knows loss. It's the commons of the soul. And what grief does is it takes us into that place of deep commonality, of shared experience. And if we're willing to work with it, it actually heals our sense of separation. It's a profoundly uh, restorative process, ironically. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And we it, we push through till it, well, it pushes us through, I should say. Until right, right. It, it, it becomes peace and then, it's, and then even joy somehow. Yes, yes. I can tell you in all honesty that the majority of our grief ritual weekends end in this, you know, nearly in a state of ecstasy. Mm. When we finally, on Sunday afternoon, are coming to the end of that ritual where we've been spending hours grieving side by side, weeping and wailing side by side, you begin to feel this current change from this deep sorrow to this feeling of delight, giddiness. It's like, as if space has kind of opened up at our chest again for something much more joyful to be present. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so in, in, that, in that process of evolution that we're going through, you've, you've talked about the five different gates of grief. How, uh, talk some more about those, if you will. In sitting with many hundreds and thousands of people over the decades of working with grief, I've begun to see that grief doesn't just show up in one way. Our primary association with grief has to do with losing someone or something that we love, a partner, a child, a friendship, a marriage, a house, a pet. And frequently people can say to us, I'm really sorry about your loss. But what about these, all, all these other forms of loss that I began to be aware of? The second gate of grief, that's the first gate of grief, by the way, is losing something or someone we love. The second gate of grief has to do with the parts of us that have never known love. In other words, when we come into our family systems, our educational systems, our religious systems, we're taught pretty clearly that certain parts of us are not welcome. And whether it's our anger or whether it's our joy or our sensuality, our playfulness, our exuberance, our sadness, we're taught pretty quickly that, no, that's not, that's not acceptable. And so we, we cleave them off. We cut them away from us in order to become something we feel will be acceptable. Now, every time we do that, it's basically a loss to our overall integrity. And we learn to treat these parts of us with judgment and contempt. So it is a state of loss but we cannot grieve it because we cannot grieve for something that we hold with judgment or contempt. So it's kind of a chronic state of grief that never has any resolution. And that's the primary work of therapy, I think, is to begin to repair and return these pieces of lost soul back into our lives. And the primary way we do that oftentimes is to grieve for, the, for living at this deep absence from this part of us for so long. The third gate of grief is the grief of the world, the sorrows of the world. And this, man, this one is just heartbreaking. I mean, we are hearing news most every single day of species depletion, of uh, deforestation, uh, 
oceans being emptied of fish, um, and, you know, oil spills, fracking, uh, or, or the common experience of driving into work for me most every single day. You know, we see the roadkill by the side of the by the side of the road. The you know squirrels and the skunks and the possum and the fox and these all affect us because any illusion that we have that we're separate from the world gets shattered when we begin to open up to the fact that the sorrows of the world are my, my sorrows and my sorrows are the world's sorrows. The fourth gate of grief is a really interesting one. It's, it's what I call what we expected and did not receive. In other words, when we arrived here, we arrived here, as R.D. Lang says, we arrived here as Stone Age children. We arrived expecting the full arc of experience that our deep time ancestors experienced. In other words, we expected to be finding ourselves in the, in the heart of a village with dozens of people seeing us, acknowledging us, and sharing meals every night, and holding the rituals of Thanksgiving and healing and initiation together, and going out and gathering firewood and listening to the stories at night around the fire. We expected to sing together and weep together, and almost none of that took place. And in this deep absence, one of the most lingering things I hear about all across the country is how empty we feel. And we tend to personalize this emptiness like somehow it's a personal reflection of my own psyche, but actually it's an absence where something beautiful should have been established. Mm-hmm. This is a profound grief that's just, we don't even know how to name it. We don't even know how to name that we're missing this, but it's there. And the last uh, gate is what I call ancestral grief. And this is both the direct line inheritance from our own genetic ancestors that at some point in the lineage they left an intact tribal context complete with rituals and language and intimacy with landscape and food and all of that at some point got disrupted and lost. And another layer to that ancestral grief is what happened particularly when our European ancestors arrived here on this continent. What happened to the indigenous people of this land and what happened to slavery, what happened to the ecosystems. That's also unmetabolized grief that we still carry to this day. So we're, we really have this whole, uh, you know, a whole line of depth that we go down through these various state gates as we t- tap just the very beginning uh, as right. we move through it all right well we're going to talk some more right after the break you want to stay here for the rest of this we got more to come be right back this is the voice america seventh wave channel Why spiritual spelunking? Why tending to our inner garden? Why devoting time to inner being when so much external doing calls upon us? An Indian sage put it wisely, your own self-realization is the greatest service you can render the world. Join host Jeel Asselin as he serves as both guide and companion on the journey within. 
Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us can be heard every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. How do we move forward? It's all a process of clearing and cleaning, as well as reconnecting. Tune into Transformation with Laota Rasul and Ahad Rasul. On our program, we'll showcase the strategies and techniques that help us with these processes. You can't move forward until you are in the right position to heal your space and place. Reveal the true self to yourself. Listen for Transformation every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Being Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss Being Here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll-free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We're back talking today to Francis Weller, um, who has taught us already quite a bit about The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which is the name of his book, the subtitle Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. Francis, if you will, I would love for you to tell the listening audience about how they might connect with you. All right. Um, through two websites, I think would be the best way. It's uh, wisdombridge.net. Wisdom Bridge is one word, or through my personal site, FrancisWeller.net. Either one of them will give you a full sense of programs available and uh, workshops that are coming up and where I'll be traveling and uh, other articles you can read. And that's, Those are the best ways to, to connect with me. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, all right, so I wanted to I wanted to get to something that I think is one of the most confounding things that I think we deal with in the Western culture in particular, and that is this co- concept of self-compassion. I was just talking just yesterday to someone who was saying, well, what, you want me to sit around and feel sorry for myself? <laughs> you know? So, you know, it's it's that thinking that we, we have that is a block it's a block to to the work that you're talking about so in your book you have a whole chapter on the gift of self-compassion i would uh, i would love it if you would talk about that for just a little bit i think that's such a vital piece andrea because uh one of the legacies of this highly individualized culture is that we find ourselves in our aloneness evaluating and judging every move we make whether or not it's going to get us into the circle or whether it's going to isolate us outside the circle. So 
also the one of the most essential parts of my work and my practice, and uh, even on the weekends, is cultivating a field of self-compassion to really begin to hold our experience with some level of mercy and kindness, which ironically is so hard for us. Remember when the Dalai Lama first came to the United States, it took the translator over an hour to help him understand the concept of self-hatred. He said, surely that can't be true. Surely people in this culture, this powerful, rich culture, people can't hate themselves. And the translator kept trying to you know, assert the fact that that was true. And he was just dumbfounded by this fact. But I know you know as a therapist, this is what walks in the door frequently. This kind of antagonistic, hateful relationship we have with our own lives. I lived with that for 40 years. I, I was in a very hateful relationship with myself. And it wasn't until I began to tend to the issues around shame and uh, really treat it with kindness that it began to heal. When I lead weekends on self-compassion, I begin the weekend by saying, this is a weekend in, in non-self-improvement. Yes. And people, you know, chuckle and laugh. I said, yes, but think about it, how addicted we are to self-improvement. And underlying that self-improvement push is oftentimes a hidden self-hatred. That I'm not okay the way I am. I have to keep pushing, whether it's lose weight, whether it's make myself prettier, whether it makes my, you know, making myself more spiritual, more integrated, more, you know, perfect, basically. And so part of the work of self-compassion has to do with, you know, creating a space where I can accept myself as I am. It doesn't mean you don't want to change things or improve things. You know, that's natural. I want to be a better guitar player. You know, I want to improve things. But, but can I welcome my experience as I am, particularly when we come to territories like grief? Um, as you said during the break, you know, this idea of, well, it sounds like, well, am I supposed to sit around self, in self-pity all week, uh, feeling sorry for myself? Self-compassion has nothing to do with pity has nothing to do with feeling sorry for oneself. It is a, a means by which the heart breaks open to our own experience. We are befriending our life when we begin to open up to a self-compassionate stance. Rather than scrutinizing, interrogating, and perfecting ourselves, we make a space to welcome, receive, and bring kindness to all of our experience, and it makes a profound change in the way we walk through the world. Yeah, so it it is, it is uh, you're, you're talking about welcoming your life. Is there also an essence of welcoming your central core self into the room as well? Um, I think it has to do with moving from a place of, of uh, care. I don't know about the central core. Okay. I've, had a, I've had a hard time with that as a principle because okay. I keep coming into multiplicity. I keep coming into uh, they're not being so much... Well, let me say that differently. The core piece for me would be soul. Okay. And that from that place... So the soul does not care about perfection at all. Mm-hmm. 
The soul cares about participation. Did I show up for this life? Was I here? Or was I simply a passerby? Did I really step into it? As Mary Oliver said, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. That's what the soul cares about. It doesn't care about failure, doesn't care about defeat or mistakes. But that's what that, you know, obsession we carry is that can't make a mistake. I always have to be successful. And so that self-compassion really can help soften the soil so then the deeper pull and the deeper yearning of soul life has a chance to be fulfilled. It's as if it can't press through our obsession with perfection. So we have to really soften that a little bit more. And then the deeper yearnings of the soul have a chance to be heard and expressed. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Yeah, yeah. I think that that whole thing of what's wrong with me, you know, mm-hmm. I have people come in, like I'm sure you do, and say, well, I'm going to be your most effed up person. You're, you know, <laughs> you're just, you know, you're, we, we, we're looking for what's wrong with us. Yes. Instead of looking for what's true in yes. us. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And underneath that is this, is this premise that only by being altogether imperfect will I be led into the circle. Mm-hmm. This goes back to a very old indigenous idea, which is that it's up to the community to impress into the body of every one of its members that they are welcome and that they belong. And that's their job to, to all the various practices they do, singing together, doing ritual together, ample amounts of touch, and you know, all that helps to affirm belonging. And we've turned that around 180 degrees where it's up to me to convince the circle that I'm someone worthy of entry. And that, we wait, that weighs on us for our entire lifetime. We're always anxious. Am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? And how do I get in? Well, I get in by being perfect. And so all those parts of me, I, mean, I remember going to therapy in my late 20s for the first time and sitting down with this therapist and saying, I want you to help me get rid of some parts of me. You know, that was my agenda. Because I knew if I just got rid of these shameful part of me, this sad part of me, then I'd be perfect. And then I could get in. But it wasn't these parts. These parts actually redeemed me. They're the ones that actually made me feel as if I belonged in the world. It was totally backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, that is that is absolutely when you say this is going to be a weekend where we're not going to, I'm not saying it like you said it, but we're not going to talk about self-improvement. That is, we're just almost, um, we're almost trying to get the, the beautiful sculpture out of the stone by, by, you know, chipping away pieces of ourselves. And yet mm-hmm, the stone, mm-hmm. stone yeah, has its we, own beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, our bookstores are full and uh, workshops are full of all, you know, all the things of trying to improve. Mm-hmm. And we have to be mindful of where, where we're moving from. Where's, that, where's our impulse coming from to participate in this training, this workshop, this program? You know, and hold these places with great tenderness. These are the most vulnerable parts of our lives. And we're always trying to ship them off and get rid of them. And again, this is a huge part of our grief is that we, uh, we live separate from our own wholeness. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So back to ritual now. What what can we do uh, in our daily lives to, or 
you know, to, to begin to open up to that deeper kind of uh, essence of soul. Well, ritual is a very powerful way to do that. And uh, it doesn't have to be an elaborate grief ritual weekend. You can begin very simply by calling, you know, two or three friends over. And, you know, with the invitation to come and say, I don't know, like on Friday night or Saturday night, we're going to begin to do something very different. We're going to talk about loss, all the ways that grief has shown up in our lives. And with certain conditions, no, no advice giving, no fixing. Grief has, you don't need to fix grief. There's nothing broken. What we need is room for grief to be witnessed. That's very different. You know, I think we're just waiting for permission to be able to tell our stories and to actually weep together. Mm-hmm. And you can do something very simple. One ritual we often do with people is put a bowl of water in the middle of the, of the circle surrounded by stones. And when you're ready, you go and pick up a stone and you tell a particular experience of loss. And you speak it into the stone and you put it in the water. And eventually you begin to see all the stones in the water and you realize this is our grief. This isn't mine. This belongs to all of us. This is our communal cup of sorrow. And we've shared it tonight. And we feel a little lighter, a little more spacious. And let's take out that water and and give it to the earth and let, let the earth use our sorrows as nutrients for the green world. You know, let's keep the cycle going. We're not supposed to carry around grief like a U-Haul. We're supposed to set it down pretty regularly. I call it the you know, soul hygiene, soul maintenance. You know, if we were sane, we'd be having grief rituals every month. I remember one woman I walked up to in Africa when I was visiting, and I said, you have so much joy. And her immediate response was, well, that's because I cry a lot. Huh. It was a shocking response. It wasn't because I shop a lot or keep myself busy or I have a lot of nice things. There was some direct relationship, again, between her joy and her sorrow. It's right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the main thing, I think, Andrea, is, is to not be alone with your grief. We are way too alone with it. And what grief is yearning for is some, some holding space in which we can become visible in the world with it and be seen and not judged, but really be seen and, and welcomed so that our grief can actually do and can complete that piece of its journey to the ocean. Yeah. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, I think that is so important. And, I, you know, we have these practices of, uh, and we're just about out of time. I could go on talking to you for hours. But um, I, I do want to say this. We have these little rituals of bringing food to each other. But I, I, my sense is that's kind of a closure thing. It's kind of like, well, let's just bring the food and then we'll be done with this, <laughs> you know, mm, yeah, instead of yeah. really participating. Yeah. In most, many traditional, I don't know if we're done yet, but most traditional cultures have at least a year in which you are allowed to grieve. Oh, and yeah. in, in the really healthy cultures, nothing is expected of you during that year. Your, wow. your spiritual obligation is to digest and make meaning out of that loss so that when you return, you're coming back with gifts for the village. And that's a really key thing is that your grief work 
isn't meant to simply be something for you, but it returns as a blessing to the village. That is so beautiful, and what a great note to end our, our interview on. That is beautifully said, that it gives a gift back to the whole world. Yes. Thank you so much, Francis, for being You're here today. Welcome, I really appreciate Andrea. it. Really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, me too. And we're going to be back next week for more with Authentic Living next Wednesday. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.